Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 16011. Precisely. Excellent. 165. 165. 165. All right. No need to discuss the primeness of that. No, we don't. Uh, It's actually 50 episodes to the episode uh, past one that we will be discussing today when we, maybe not for the first time, but for the most extensive time, discussed myths, dis, and malinformation, which we will be coming back to today, in part because of uh, some of the latest revelations in the Twitter files. Excellent. We're also going to be talking about um, the nature of respiratory viruses, pandemics, and iatrogenic harm, which we will define when we get to that section. And we'll be uh, reading a few short excerpts from a theologian, a German theologian, who was a chaplain in the German army in World War I and later sent missives into Germany from America during World War II to try to wake the German people up. Excellent. I am looking forward to this. I do have to say to our audience, we are once again working. uh, Zach is looking out for us remotely, but we are running the podcast ourselves. If I appear to be distracted momentarily, I'm just trying to make sure that there is nothing I need to know about what's going on. Uh, right or wrong, and uh, I should comment, we didn't mention uh, an idea that Zach had before he left was this light bulb, which is a bit meta. I mean, <laughs> in any case, let us know what you think of it. Um, all right. Uh, we have... Okay. Also, I just launched right in without saying, you're Brett Weinstein, Dr. Brett Weinstein, and I am Dr. Heather Hying, and let's do a couple, a little bit of... Uh, Logistics up front, thanking you all for your support in various ways and telling you where else you can find us and our sponsors, and then we will get right into some of that mistis and malinformation that uh, you have all come to enjoy so much. <laughs> so um, once again this week, we will not be doing a QA. and uh, Next week, we'll be back same time, same place, and we will do a and a and maybe, maybe, I'm not promising, but maybe we'll make it a little longer since we will have missed two weeks in a row. Uh, apologies for that. I know a lot of people really appreciate being able to ask us questions. And we were in a situation this week when we were able to be asked questions um, with a live audience. And it was just it was just so wonderful to remember what that's like. Yeah, so, it really uh, was a reminder of just what an awesome experience that is. Yeah, indeed. So uh, we will be back with the Q&A next week. Uh, you can find you can find my writing weekly at Natural Selections, my Substack. Uh, this week, I republished a piece that was originally published in the essay anthology Iconoclast. Uh, It's called Me, She, He, They, and it's an exploration of sex and gender and uh, transness and uh, specifically also non-binariness and whether or not that makes any sense at all as an identity. Spoiler alert, no, it does not. Uh, I'm I'm proud of this essay and a lot of people have uh, truly enjoyed it, so I encourage you to go there if that is one of the topics that you are... um, interested in or thinking uh, it is a harbinger of the uh, apocalypse one of the horsemen i think it is uh and uh i do think that we can reverse at least that part of it and maybe once we turn one of the horses around maybe we can get them all turned yeah around. we can just be done with harbingers all together uh, done with harbingers. whatever harbingers are yeah whatever a harbinger is I don't any know. harbinger in a storm no <laughs> maybe that's not I, how that works I, probably not um so we are supported by you, and we appreciate you uh, subscribing to the channel, liking 
uh, whole videos that you find here on YouTube and on Odyssey and on Spotify. And if you're listening only in whatever form you are taking in your podcast, please subscribe. If you like the channel, like, uh, share videos, share clips, which you can find clips, um, Dark Horse podcast clips on both YouTube and uh, Odyssey as well. And Odyssey is where the live chat is happening if you're tuning in. You live. can also comment. There's no reason just to shake your fist idly at your screen. You can tell us. Yes, you can. Yes. That suggests that we should look at the comments, which we, which we don't. Sometimes but, we do. But um, but, uh, but commenting does... Um, in a fair world, uh, commenting would help with the algorithms that would then put what we're doing in front of more people, but um, it's patently not fair in that way. So I don't know that your comments do, uh, but um, they say that uh, if there isn't any sort of shadowy stuff going on behind the scenes, that the more comments, the more likely uh, the work is to get spread. Far yes, away. in our case, we know that YouTube is there, that they shake their fists at the screen, and then they start pressing buttons they that do. Uh, sabotage our content, which is, um, you know, I can't say we appreciate it because I know that we don't, but uh, we also seemed so far not to have been able to stop them from doing that. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, so... Uh, also, we encourage you to join uh, one of our Patreons. On both of them, you can get access to our wonderful Discord server where you can join conversations in a variety of formats on a variety of topics across um, a whole swath of humanity uh, who are enjoying being there and doing things like happy hour and karaoke and book clubs. And at my Patreon, you can join a, a monthly private Q&A that we do together. The last Sunday of every month and the first usually first Saturdays and Sundays of every month you have conversations one of which you just finished uh, for the month uh, from at your Patreon. Indeed quite provocative um, and uh, actually some good stuff may have come out of it so anyway it was uh, it was a good conversation and people who are looking for a good group of folks who are actually interested in figuring out how the world might be improved it's a great place to uh, to come join us. That's fabulous. All right. And of course, we do have sponsors. Uh, we pick and choose our sponsors carefully. And so if we are reading ads, as we do three at the top of every hour, um, you can be sure that we have uh, vetted these, um, these companies and um, actually are speaking for them. Our first sponsor this week is Mindbloom. Mindbloom is a leader in at-home ketamine therapy, offering a combination of scientifically robust medicine with clinically guided support for people looking to improve their mental health and well-being. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health issues, those issues may well loom large in your life. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but you know that you or your loved one needs something that will help achieve a real and lasting breakthrough. Maybe it's time for you to check out a guided ketamine therapy program from Mindbloom. Mindbloom could be your next and most successful chapter in mental health and well-being. Mindbloom connects patients to licensed psychiatric clinicians to help them achieve better outcomes with lower costs, greater convenience, and an artfully crafted experience. To begin, you take Mindbloom's online assessment and schedule a video consult with a licensed clinician to determine if Mindbloom is right for you. If approved, you'll discuss your health history and goals for mental health treatment with your clinician to tailor your Mindbloom regimen. Mindbloom will send you a kit in the mail complete with medicine, treatment materials, and tips for getting the most out of your experience. After only four sessions, 89% of Mindbloom clients reported improvements in their symptoms of depression and anxiety. As one client reports on their site, quote, I thought I was broken. Now the light inside me is growing stronger every day. Let Mindbloom guide you into a better chapter of mental health and well-being. 
Right now, MindBloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com slash darkhorse and use promo code darkhorse at checkout. Go to mindbloom.com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse for $100 off your first six-session program today. That's mindbloom, M-I-N-D-B-L-O-O-M dot com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse. Okay, our second sponsor today is American Heart for Gold. If you listen to Dark Horse, which if you're listening to this ad, presumably you do, then you likely know just how incompetent and unstable many of our institutions are becoming. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. Interest rates are sky high. We are caught between runaway inflation and a recession, and our leaders are increasingly nonsensical. All of this threatens businesses, jobs, and retirement funds. Finding ways to secure your nest egg and insulate your wealth is more important than ever, and adding precious metals to your assets is a great way to stabilize your investments and protect yourselves yourself financially or yourselves if you're if you're a they them um american okay if you're a couple or a family that's <laughs> makes a lot more sense Which i guess couples and families are they them yes couples and families are they them and they're much more likely to try to protect their assets by uh investing in precious metals which we recommend american heart for gold is a precious metals dealer that can help you do just that american heart for gold helps individuals and families see right there mm. protect their wealth by diversifying with precious metals they make it simple and easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver with one short phone call you can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your ira or 401k they are the highest rated firm in the country with an a plus rating from the better business bureau and thousands of satisfied clients and if you call them right now they will give you up to five thousand dollars of free silver on your first qualifying order Contact American Heart for Gold today by visiting the link in the episode description below or call 866-828-1117. That's 866-828-1117 or text DARKHORSE to 998899. Once more, that's 866-828-1117 to get on the phone with the people at American Heart for Gold who can help you uh, get actual precious metals in your portfolio or text DARKHORSE to 998899. It's important to remember how much of a better investment physical gold and silver is than mental gold and silver, which, you know. Yeah, got tons of that. Yeah, as much as you want, really, Mm -hmm. all you can eat. Yeah. Okay, our final sponsor this week is Vivo Barefoot, shoes made for feet. Everyone should try these shoes. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet, not Vivos. Vivos are made by people with feet who know how to use them. And word is spreading. Yes, absolutely. Some of the best. Yeah. Um, we sometimes get asked by people who come up to us and want to know whether Vivos are as good as we say, and they really are. Here at Dark Horse, we love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you are walking on is amazing, and they cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They are fantastic. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. Modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively affected foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Enter Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business practices 
Their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials and the, with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild upon it. Go to vivobarefoot.com and use Dark Horse 15 to get an exclusive uh, 15% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's vivobarefoot, V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 at checkout. Awesome. Okay. There it is. There it is. We transitioned. We transitioned. Out uh, of ads. Yes. Back into the main part of the podcast. It's a That's totally it. standard kind of transition. Yeah. The kind that is actually possible in reality land. Yes. Which is where we hope to. It's where we're broadcasting from. That's right. <laughs> we are here talking to you from reality land. Hopefully yep. you're there too. Okay. Uh, so we wanted to start by talking by. Um, returning to a topic we have we have discussed many times, uh, but uh, as I as I mentioned, we uh, we talked about in depth fifty episodes ago uh, on episode one fifteen in February of twenty twenty two, and uh, missed dis and malinformation. But maybe you want to introduce it, given because we're talking about it because of some of the stuff that's happened this week with the Twitter files yep. and Congress. Yeah, we have new Twitter files, and even more importantly, we had the testimony of Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi to uh, the House of Representatives, um, where uh, it was a remarkable hearing. I actually recommend that people go back and just start listening uh, to what is said. It is so amazing. In Matt Taibbi's case, we have one of the most decorated journalists of our era being slandered as if he was some sort of uh, pretender, a grifter, uh, not a journalist at all. The so-called journalist is, in fact, what he was accused of being. Mm-hmm. And it's just, what planet is this from? But nonetheless, um, the hearing... Unfortunately, it seems to be from Planet Blue. From Planet Blue, it seems to be. Somehow, somehow the party that you and I remember as the party, the anti-war party, um, and the party that would defend liberal principles like free speech um, is now the party attacking these very things. It's the party of this newfangled racism. It's hard to believe what's happened. But nonetheless, we are where we are. And uh, so Matt and Michael... Uh, testified about what they have seen in the Twitter files, which are basically files that uh, Elon Musk has made available to select journalists in order to reveal what has taken place behind the scenes with respect to the control of information. And the central feature of what was revealed in the most recent Twitter files and in the testimony uh, of Matt and Michael to the House was the massive network of collusion between various pieces of our security state and uh, the tech platforms to suppress various viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly struck to see a discussion, you know, in in the Congress uh, by by Matt of misdis and malinformation. Right, misdis and malinformation is something you and I have been trying to raise the alarm about since episode 115 back in February of 2022, and the context is nothing if not alarming. And I was a little bit shocked to see that the full weight of it actually had not yet 
um, become visible in the context of the Twitter file. So misdis and malinformation, you will all remember, are three categories that were seen together, I think, for the first time on February 7th of 2022. Can I show my screen? Uh, yeah, let's show your screen if I can remember how to do that. So hey. this is this is uh, a bulletin from the Department of Homeland Security uh, from exactly as you said, February 7th, 2022. And we showed exactly this as well in episode 115 in February of 2022, uh, stating that they have issued a National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin suggesting um and and as to why they're doing that um because they're you know they're continuing threats against uh against the homeland apparently right and uh and and i'm not you may have to undo my screen in order for me to get to the right place to to show but you were about to define uh the terms but i think we can also um we can also get there directly if you want to start defining misdis sure. and malinformation as I Yes, you will I all those of you who watched episode 115 will be reminded that misinformation is information that is incorrect but accidentally um, There you go. I'm going to interrupt you for a moment and say so the Department of Homeland Security site which we were just on the bulletin from February 7, 2022 links to a misdis and malinformation site here, exactly this, and we'll put this in the show notes, uh, which is at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency branch of the federal government of the United States. Uh, and here they have terms to know. Some tactics of foreign influence, they specify here, include leveraging misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Definitions for each are below. We just read these or you want to define them? Well, um, I'm a little concerned because I know that some of their sites, they have modified these definitions, perhaps in part because we called attention to what they were up to. These are these have actually these, remained the same. They um, have remained I, the same. Okay. Uh, even even though this this site looks very different uh, and uh, and it, it appears to be living in a different place. Uh, you can't get there the same way you could get there uh, 13 months ago. Um, but the definitions that they have, they have used here are the same ones that we shared in February of 2022. All right. Uh, so misinformation is false, but not created or shared with the intention of causing harm. Disinformation is deliberately created to mislead, harm, or manipulate a person, social group, organization, or country. And malinformation is based on fact, but used out of context to mislead, harm, or manipulate. An example of malinformation is editing a video to remove important context to harm or mislead. So that that is one sentence that I'm, I don't think was in the original. Yeah, I don't think it was in yeah. the original. And there's been a lot of uh, skullduggery behind the scenes, including the deleting of uh, what amounts to evidence of this uh, extra constitutional behavior on the part of the Department of Homeland Security. But the, the upshot is this. Before we get to the upshot, because that is the... That is the um, the final bit here. Can we just spend some time talking about the misdis and malinformation? Yes, I want to. I, I want to go through the taxonomy. Misinformation. The, one of the things that we said in the episode, and we'll we'll share actually the clip that I think the twenty five minute clip in which we talked about it a year ago, um, is that actually um, in education, in when you teach. Uh, at least uh, if you if you are teaching well, if you are actually trying to get your students to be able to go out into the world and assess what is true and what is not and uh, and have a response when people are trying to manipulate them is that you provide to them 
forms of mis, dis, and malinformation in order to allow them to learn how to recognize it when it comes at them. Yeah, I, I would say it differently. I would say they have gone out of their way to formalize things as if they are um, a threat that are actually a normal part of various kinds of discourse, comedy, teaching, etc. Misinformation, errors. Disinformation, intentional errors, malinformation, things that are not in error, but that might lead to the distrust of the government, distrust of things like vaccine safety. Now, the there are two parts to this. Um, yeah, uh, there are two parts uh, to the problem here. And one of them was clearly outlined in the hearings uh, by Michael and Matt. That is the draconian nature of these definitions with respect to a systematic campaign of uh, propaganda and censorship, right? They fully recognize the horror of your government defining things like information that is based in fact but causes distrust of the government entities themselves. To declare that uh, worthy of some sort of control is A, unconstitutional, mm -hmm. and um, be very troubling because it is part and parcel of uh, propaganda and censorship, which are at the core of uh, tyrannical state power. What they did not say... So we do have a few more things to say about this. If, if you, if you, if you go, want... Go ahead. Okay. Um, one of the things that we talked about um, a year ago... Uh, but did not actually share a link to, and we're going to this time share a link. This is, um, you can actually show my screen again. Uh, this is a PDF from uh, the same um, the same cluster of sites, of government sites, in which uh, they give advice to organizations or people who might want to control mystis and malinformation. And they call this the Rumor Control Page Startup Guide. And we did talk about this some uh, a year ago, uh, but they, again, have uh, mis, dis, and malinformation defined, this time with handy little infographics in which the bullhorn is spreading out true things that the government wishes would not be said, and that is malinformation. And if you come down and, and try to learn what is it, what should you do, what does the government want you to do if you think that you have determined that there is some mis, dis, or malinformation out there, uh, well, here, how do you com communicate effectively on a rumor control page? Remember, the government thinks that rumor control pages are good because rumors in this, in this uh, taxonomy are bad things, you know, errors, um, intentional errors, or things that the gov government doesn't want you talking about or knowing. Uh, well, uh, you could uh, preemptively debunk or prebunk was the phrase that uh, that we found amusing a year ago. Because what are they talking about? Um, lead with the truth, not the rumor. Keep it simple. Hey, they've got a light bulb. Look at that. Uh, and be consistent in the types of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation narratives and activities that you debunk. You know, don't be too much of a generalist. You know, stay in your lane. So, wait, wait, go back. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I would just want to point easy. out that lead with the truth doesn't mean lead with the truth. It means lead with that fraction of the truth that does not cause distrust of the government. Right. Now, I just want to point out, as a patriotic American, how unpatriotic this is. Mm -hmm. This is a violation of arguably the most central principle at the heart of the free West, 
the ability to discuss that which is true, especially when it involves things that cause the government to be untrustworthy and therefore need to be corrected through the natural mechanisms of democracy. So I will say, you said, uh, I want to point out as a patriotic American just how unpatriotic this is. I would also like to point out as a scientific American just how unscientific this is, okay? And scientific American doesn't mean anything in particular, except it used to be a popular uh, science magazine of some repute, but has since fallen into the ideological rabbit hole. Uh, but this is the opposite of, of how one understands the world scientifically, because, okay, government, define truth. Oh, wait, no, please don't, because you keep on getting it wrong. And science does, right? Like science is a process by which we constantly refine our understanding and hopefully get closer and closer and closer to a true understanding of what is actually going on in the universe. And on balance over time, if you take the long time horizon, we certainly do get there. But any given change may have actually moved us backwards. You can't know in the moment. And we have seen in the last three years of this unending, uh, fear-mongering SARS-CoV-2 landscape that we live in now for, and will forever probably, um, that when the government changes its opinions as to what is true or what is the right policy or what it is that you're allowed to talk about, they always kind of vaguely wave their arms and say, well, of course, the science has changed. And in no case so far that I have seen them do this and that we have talked about this, has have we found or have they supplied any evidence that the science just changed? And of course, the science change isn't what they mean. What they're suggesting is that the scientific evidence uh, has, is now pointing in a different direction, which would be fantastic if that was actually what was going on. But in fact, uh, either they have lost control of the narrative and they have to admit something they didn't want to admit before, or they are simply changing up what it is that they want you to believe now. And in neither that case nor the former case, are they actually going to provide any evidence because you know you wouldn't understand or something like that. Yes, and it uh, eliminates the natural remedies should government fail in its attempt to do science or to foster science. Certainly, the way we would find that out and do something about it would be to discuss the failure of our government with respect to a scientific question. And if you're not allowed to talk about things that contravene the government's current scientific perspective, then that can't be done. So this basically assumes that the government will be right. It is a religious position that they are selling the public. Exactly. You remember when uh, Facebook's fact-checking arm, PolitiFact, declared you and Robert Malone... Uh, purveyors of their worst level of unfactiness, pant, liar, liar, pants on fire, uh, for uh, claiming a few things, including uh, that SARS-CoV-2 may have actually leaked from a lab. That earned their liar, liar, pants on fire rating, uh, because that was not true then. But it maybe later became a little bit less true because, or a little bit more true, because they rescinded their rating without saying anything about it and said, no, maybe we don't know. Well, let's just look at what's happened now that the uh, Washington Post is able to talk about the probability that this virus emerged from a lab. You and the public are clearly licensed to talk about it, which is basically synonymous with saying that the government has dictated when you can talk about this, which is obviously a violation of the First Amendment. Right. You're no longer guilty of malinformation if you talk about it, but we will let you know when you are. Malinformation terrorism, I should point out. We haven't gotten there yet, remember? <laughs> um, right? Um, so just one more thing from this page. Um, they offer, 
uh, a rumor control checklist. If you are an organization or a person who wants to uh, go into rumor control uh, mode and um, fight the good fight with the government against mis, dis, and malinformation, here are some things that they suggest you consider. And if most of your answers are yes, you're probably in a good position to put up one of these rumor control checklists, uh, rumor control uh, sites um, of your own. Um, is the narrative... Um, around a contentious or disputed topic where information is changing or not widely known, it's a good chance you should probably fact check that mm. if, the, if the information is changing. Mm. Okay. Um, are multiple narratives or artifacts converging into a single narrative or conspiracy? Well, look, if there's a lot of stories and we're getting a refinement as to what we think is true, that's a good sign that you should put something up to pre-bunk or prior or, or what was it? it was like debunk um, in advance or in advance pre-bunk. They went like pre-pre-bunk. I can't remember which ones are preposterous <laughs> jokes and which ones were official proposals. It may be rebunk. Right. Rebunk? rebunk? Yeah, no, but they, they, they asked, they suggested that you should debunk and, and pre-bunk. And then uh, if the narrative or artifact focuses on upcoming major milestones or events where early fact-checking could proactively disrupt the spread. So major milestones or events, they don't say anything about whether or not those major milestones or events are true, not true, good, bad. And they're like, we know that the government has some idea about what it does and does not want you to be resisting here. Uh, but there's nothing in here about what is actually true because... Because if there were, then that would take, that would pull the rug out from under this plan. So now you uh, would like to come back to. Um, yes. The fact of the government being involved in a massive propaganda campaign in which they are going to sell us narratives that contravene the truth and they are going to silence voices that point this out is bad enough. But it becomes 10 times worse when they do so under the guise of preventing a kind of terrorism. And what most people do not understand, and what was not mentioned in these hearings as far as I know, is the fact that when they say mis, dis, and malinformation are a form of terrorism, they are saying something with absolutely profound legal consequences, or I should probably say extra-legal consequences, because of changes that were made to the structure of our laws under the Bush and Obama administrations, when the executive branch, of which the Department of Homeland Security is a part, declares somebody a terrorist, it triggers all kinds of provisions that in the panic after 9-11 we allowed to be installed into law, things that effectively end your constitutional rights. So. It is important that people understand we, presumably by their definitions, have been guilty of spreading malinformation in this podcast because what we're telling you is that your government is now behaving as a rogue state, that it is declaring people terrorists who are doing nothing but speaking the truth. We, we don't know that it has done that. We don't know that it has done it, but yeah. the point is they've set out a definition, and right. the definition involves true things that cause distrust. Mm -hmm. And this is something that should cause you to distrust your government. It's also true. So the point is, by using that term, they're not just saying malinformation is bad. They are saying malinformation meets a 
technical standard that then causes you to lose your rights. And the most important thing about this is it's not that they, they, there is no obligation that they tell you that you have triggered this provision in the law. You do not have the right to challenge it in a court. You do not even know that it has happened. And so we are talking about a level of tyranny well beyond propaganda and censorship. And that is something that should truly alarm us. So I really hope that we will uh, start to, to understand their private language, right? The executive branch has powers that they are not supposed to have, that have not been tested by a court. And those powers um, have everything to say about our information environment, what we are allowed to discover, who we are allowed to listen to. And um, it really, it could not be a, a more frightening turn of events. I'm glad that we are finally having a conversation at the level of uh, congressional hearings in which we're talking about malinformation, but let's not underrate the danger of, of that provision. Indeed. All right. Is that where you wanted to go I think so. with this section? All right. Actually, there is one more thing I wanted to say about it. Um, Actually, I'll save it for later. Sorry, I, uh, I, th I think that's a good place to leave it for now. All right. Uh, so we also wanted to talk about uh, the nature of respiratory disease, pandemics, and iatrogenic harm. This is prompted by a excellent piece on a um, substack called Bad Catitude um, by an anonymous scholar, writer, who goes by Gato Malo, um, in which uh, he writes... I assume it's a he. I think it has to be a he because otherwise it would be gata mala. Maybe, maybe not. No. Maybe he's misgendering himself <laughs> in the substack. I don't think I don't think that's how it works anyway. Yeah. Um, I think all cats are male in Spanish. In Spanish. <laughs> you know, it's not even binary. It's like mononary. Oh, where have we landed? I don't know. No, this this is fine. Though. I'd I'd rather land here than a lot of the places that seem to be where people are spending time. Yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah. Um. So, uh, this the piece is called, uh, and and we'll link to it uh, in in the show notes. The greatest, and again, it's bad catitude with two T's, like cat and attitude is a portmanteau word. Word. That's not a word. Word, word is, not, is a word. not a word. No. Um, it's called The Greatest Lie Told During COVID and the one they will undoubtedly try to tell again. So the lie is, as Gato Malo argues in this piece, pandemics are dangerous to modern societies. Now that's going to sound like an extraordinary thing to call a lie, isn't it? Um, how could they not be? We all know, we all know of pandemics like the one we are supposedly still living in, um, and the Spanish flu, uh, and how you know how completely dangerous they are. But but he he lays it out, and I'm going to lay out some of it. And again, I recommend that you read the piece. But let's just lay out a few of the a few of the pieces here. What do we actually know? Um, well, one of one of actually before I before I lay it out in an organized way, one of the um, past pandemics of the last hundred years uh, that he points to is the Hong Kong flu uh, in 1968-69, uh, which I had actually not. heard heard of except that we were both born in 1969 and your mother actually had it when she, she was pregnant it. with you that's right right and Which may explain everything it may explain everything absolutely yeah. um but it was you know it was it was it was pretty bad people were taking it very seriously and yet what happened uh near the near the end or in the like in the middle of um of the hong kong flu so-called hong kong flu uh being one of the worst pandemics in america well woodstock happened 
right? You know, instead of the response that we had during COVID, which is shut down everything and um, instill fear in the hearts and minds of everyone that you can possibly instill fear in, we let, we let. That's that's a terrible way to put it. But, you know, the, the American government and the American people uh, apparently never considered, or if they ever considered, it never got past um, some very small meetings um, doing anything like disrupting society at the level that has happened during COVID. Woodstock happened. One of the you know greatest known um, public displays of sort of um, human ecstasis in the 20th century, right? So, and what happened? Gosh, well, Woodstock, that's got to have been a super spreader event. Well, no, it was fine, right? It was fine. So um, similarly, as I was reading this piece, sort of before I lay out his argument, um, he mentioned Zika, which was a virus uh, that shows up in South America uh, as something that causes, if I remember correctly, microencephaly uh, in um, babies born to mothers who were exposed to Zika while they were pregnant. And we were about to go on our 11-week study abroad with 30 students, uh, you know, half of whom were women and all of whom were of reproductive age. And we had to, we had to, we felt compelled, we felt honor bound and, and that it was required of us to talk carefully with all of them about what this, what we could tell about this new emerging pathogen, what the risks were to them, uh, and um, to advise that if any of them were actually thinking of, you know, getting pregnant, becoming mothers anytime soon, um, they should maybe consider not going. That it was, you know, that there there seemed to be some kind of a some kind of a latency, and it was this emerging virus we didn't know, um, but it was it was our our obligation to talk about what um, what that was, and it seemed like it might be something that would take over the world, and then it fizzled, right? Like people just stopped talking about it at some point after some number of months, uh, and this in part is the argument that Gato Malo is making that um, these these mostly um, these, these pandemics that we are told to be terrified of, uh, if there is no big governmental response, they tend to burn themselves out. So... Can I fill that in a little bit? Yeah. I, or, I'm, oh, you're going to do I'm it. About to, yeah. <clears throat> that respiratory pathogens almost never cause pandemics in the modern era, basically since penicillin. Uh, that penicillin and other antibiotics, depending on you know what the pathogen is, uh, have... Uh, have done a fantastic job of controlling the kinds of things that might once have actually done um, widespread fast damage in human populations. And that is even uh, when they appear to, because many, maybe you want to actually, maybe you want to jump in here before I get into the public policy measures. So effectively, the argument is that there is a trade-off. Things that spread highly effectively aren't highly pathogenic um, or highly virulent. And so... The point is, yes, things can spread across civilization. A respiratory virus, though, requires you to, as we've talked about many times on Dark Horse, it requires you to be up and about in order to do the spreading, and therefore it can't make you all that sick, which means it's not likely to be all that deadly. There are diseases that are exceptions, but they have other modes of transmission. And so... So just to, to fill that in, if you... if if you do not transmit directly if the pathogen doesn't go from host to host but uses a vector to get between you. Uh, something that is malaria, uh, that is um, mosquito-borne, for instance, mosquito vector diseases like 
malaria, like yellow fever, like West Nile, like dengue, um, may actually benefit from making its host sick enough to be non-mobile, such that mosquitoes are better able to find hosts and then carry them to other not yet infected um, potential hosts. Not only um, not able to move around, but, uh, you know, let's take dengue. Yeah. Uh, the colloquial name, breakbone fever. Yeah. Um, the reason, because of the profound pain in the bones in a, it happens after a person's been infected a second time by dengue. Um, so this is a, a complex phenomenon that involves somebody who already has immunity, which the pathogen then utilizes. But anyway, the point is, oh, you your bones feel like they're broken? Well, you're not very good at swatting mosquitoes, even if, you know, if you're lying yeah. flat, right? Yeah. So anyway, some pathogens can be profoundly debilitating and very dangerous. And dengue, the second time you get it, is one of these pathogens. Um, but and one at least one of the species of malaria, of which there are four. Uh, right? They, they, these these diseases can they kill can you. be very very yeah. uh, very and very they can kill you and still win in at being the disease that they are, at being the pathogen that they are that causes the disease. Whereas if you don't have a vector or some other mechanism by which uh, to spread, making your host very, very, very sick so that they can't go out and, and infect other people is an evolutionary dead end for the pathogen. And so pathogens that do that won't persist. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say, and this is proper context, we, we've been fed an overly simplistic model of all kinds of things, including uh, the damage that comes from pathogens for this entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens, even if you had a comparatively high case fatality rate, in large measure what's happening is those are it's pulling deaths that would occur soon, so they happen sooner than they might. But the idea that we've been sold is that somebody's life was lost, and that's not the right way to think about it. It's how many years of life were lost, right? And which so you might actually be able to see that um, if you if you look at excess mortality for you know five years before through ten years after exactly and see if you have less than expected afterwards because you some totally. number of people have already died a year two three years before they might have it, that is exactly right yeah. um, so anyway it's not it's not a simple calculation and also if you were doing something like comparing unknown harms from uh, a transfection agent and you know an untried gene therapy uh, and a disease with an unknown risk to human life if the risk is to young people then the number of years lost for every life lost is huge yeah. right whereas when somebody is dying of covid and they are at their life expectancy or beyond it they're losing very few years and these things should it's not a difficult thing to calculate the amount of loss. We just refused to do it because something wanted us to think these were deaths as if these people were going to live forever, uh, you know, absent the virus, when in fact what mostly happened was people who were very old or quite sick had some years potentially lost, but uh, not a huge number. So uh, the argument continues. Again, this is in uh, the Bad Catitude substack piece that I will link to. Uh, that many public policy measures like lockdowns, and um, although this wasn't a public policy measure, this was a widespread medical measure, particularly in some places like New York, the use of ventilators, lockdowns, ventilators, did more harm than good. And uh, many, if not most of 
if, if not maybe even the vast majority of COVID deaths during COVID are attributable to what Brett was just talking about with regard to hastening uh, the demise of someone who was already near the end of their life, which doesn't make it a wonderful thing to have happened, but it's less tragic um, than when a child dies or a young person dies. Um, but even, um, you know, if, if we look at 2020, before the, the transfection agents, before the so-called vaccines were charted out, at which point um, we have other reasons to um, consider what excess deaths are about. Uh, the, the argument laid out here is that many of the, um, um, many of the harms, many of the excess deaths and other injuries that people were experiencing uh, were iatrogenic. And iatrogenic means, and I'm just going to read exactly the definition uh, that uh, that he writes in his book, is relating to, uh, in his book in his Substack relating to illness caused by medical examination or treatment. So, if what we have uh, are largely harms caused not by the pathogen but by the treatment uh, brought on in order to treat the pathogen, then certainly it could have been avoided. And there's a lot of evidence um, that comes in a variety of forms in this uh, in this piece, including, for instance, that Sweden, which almost uniquely in the West, uh, responded very quickly, very early in a couple of ways, but then mostly just let its society be. And a lot of people in the West were confused. I mean, I was confused. I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. What are they doing? I would have expected Sweden and all the rest of the Scandinavian countries to be doing sort of what the U.S. is doing, but more so. Uh, and the fact is that what they did worked. And what they did was uh, not much. They let society be, right? They let society do what it, in, what it was supposed to be doing. Uh, and uh, specifically, ventilators. Uh, in the ventilators, which were widespread uh, in ICUs in New York and not in several other states, uh, correlate, uh, you, you see extremely high death rates um, during the period when ventilators were being used on COVID patients in ICUs in New York and not at the same time controlling for almost everything except the exact location uh, in these other states where ventilators weren't being used. That suggests that the ventilators were the cause, um, um, the primary cause rather than the COVID. You have, of course, um, sending COVID positive people into care homes where, you know, care homes are already people who are who are at risk or because of um, because of their age, because they are somewhat infirm, because they're not being allowed to go outside, because they're not moving much. You send COVID positive people into care homes, you spread COVID, and some of those people are not going to make it. And keeping people inside rather than letting people go outside and be active and be healthy and make do while the sun shines and do all of the things that we're supposed to be doing outside, of course, was another iatrogenic harm as a result. Uh, iatrogenic harm from during COVID, which can be attributed to not the virus, but the policy in response to the virus. And then we'll talk about Spanish flu in a moment, but you have some things to say. Yeah, I have a, a number of things to say here. One, there is a question the deaths occurred as a result of medical treatment that was a mistake yes. or it may have been a mistake. I think the, the ventilators, for instance. It the ventilators, seems, yeah. yes. The ventilators, for instance, sending sick people to care homes, all of these things had a negative impact. Well, I was, I was just saying with regard to a mistake, I, ho I hope that the ventilator use was a mistake. I cannot fathom how sending sick people into care homes ever made sense. Yeah, but this, but, this is the point I'm going to make. Okay. Is the striking thing about our behavior at a medical level during COVID 
was that we did essentially everything we shouldn't have done and none of the things we should have done. Right. People should have been outside. We locked them inside. We took sick people and sent them to places they would infect other vulnerable people. We hooked them up to ventilators. When the ventilators didn't work, we turned up the pressure. Right. We denied them drugs that are safe and do work. We gave them things, uh, medical treatments that don't work and cause harm. It's across the board. And I keep trying to call attention to the unlikeliness yeah. of you landing on every wrong answer. That's really improbable, right? Yes. Um, so I don't know whether that is just a matter of we have a few morons who think upside down and land on the wrong answer all the time. And really all you got to do to find out the right answer is do the opposite of whatever they say. That seems super unlikely, but could be. But the point is, um, we did all these things. Whatever their nature, they caused a lot of people to die. And then we counted them as COVID deaths. Yes. And so the counting them as COVID deaths then amped up the panic. Helped stoke fear. Right. And the panic then justified the draconian measures that were inflicted on us. Mm -hmm. So, again, I don't know how this worked or why it happened, but Gatomalo's point is we inflicted this harm on ourselves it caused a lot of fear because it created numbers that left the impression of an extremely dangerous virus now of course you and i believe that the virus is very destructive but it doesn't have a high case fatality rate right. and so the fear that it was going to rob us of you know our friends and relatives at some high rate was always nonsense mm -hmm. um, but we created this um fictional pathogen that was doing that and those had there been a force behind the scenes that had been looking for an excuse to increase its own power to control the behavior of the population, what could be said, where people could go, this became that excuse, and it mm -hmm. deployed it um, at an incredible rate. Um, the other thing uh, from the points you've, uh, you've highlighted so far that I thought was very strong in this piece was it suggests that in some sense, as bad as a disease that's circulating in society is, and I think we underrate the harm of all the things that circulate, but as bad as they are, it may be that the best thing you can do is as little as possible. You can treat the symptoms, you can take you know, basic rational precautions. You, Isolate very sick people. Yeah, if, you, if you're sick, yeah. Don't make contact with other people, wash your hands, these sorts of things. You know, you can treat uh, acute cases if you've got a really good safe drug that seems to prevent it transmission. When one person in a household gets it, you could give that drug to the others, you know, and uh, there are all sorts of basic things you could do. Now, but the new virus, is that the moment to introduce other new medical technology or is that not the moment? That's the amazing thing. And uh, the last thing I want to say at this stage in the discussion is we have two basic models of medicine in competition. And I believe that we saw something like a coup unfold by one against the other during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. The coup was by the public health approach to the medical health approach. Mm -hmm. Now, I certainly agree that there are questions to be raised about public health. There are things that happen at the population level that matter that are not best addressed at the personal level. However, personal medical health with respect to illnesses that an individual comes down with are 
comparatively well addressed from a bottom-up approach. That is to say, doctors seeing patients, discovering what works, what doesn't work, talking with each other, improving their own techniques, pooling their information, right? That system... But treating patients as individuals, right? not as uh, temporarily disaggregated members of some vague population. Doctors don't treat populations. Doctors treat individuals. Individuals. And pools of doctors get smarter because a doctor who sees a pattern will discuss that pattern with other doctors who will decide whether they are seeing that pattern mm -hmm. and what it might mean. That emergent intelligence grows in medicine. And what has happened here is we have decided instead that we what we want is the highest quality information sourced by the people in a position to see the most who will then hand down the information about the standard of care. And in this case, they handed us every wrong idea there was. Mm -hmm. They did massive harm, whereas doc and they and they and they 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 basically um, they handcuffed the doctors who otherwise would have done much better. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, the comparison between a bottom-up approach, doctors seeing patients and discovering what works, versus a top-down approach where Anthony Fauci tells you what he was given on the tablets on the mountain and this thing, right? There's no comparison between these in terms of how much harm was going to be done. We tried, during COVID, we tried the Anthony Fauci version, and we got an absolutely unmitigated disaster. We got a disaster that we amplified. Yes, we did. Yeah, we made it worse. Every day, week, month, year, we continued to listen to um, the the public health, I don't even know what to call it, machine, I guess, at this point, because it's, it's fundamentally doing the opposite of what it should be doing. So what uh, might have been going on with Spanish flu? This is 1918, 19, um, and is usually trotted out as the example in the 20th century of like, okay, but we, you know, we had penicillin, like what, why that, that was huge. And we obviously can't afford another, another Spanish flu. And, uh, and, um, here's the thinking. And I will walk through a little bit of, um, <clears throat> just uh, walk through a little bit of what Gautamala says, and then go to the paper that he's, he's citing here. Apparently aspirin which was a relatively new drug at the time and seemed like a wonder drug. Uh, and, but not much was known about the dosing and um, high dosages, of course, now are understood to be toxic. Um, aspirin was a primary drug used in the treatment of Spanish flu, especially in the military. And um, specifically, Spanish flu was preferentially treated in many areas with doses of aspirin between 8 and 31 grams per day. 8 and 31 grams per day. Today, most aspirin is 325 milligrams. It's a third of a gram. And the max dose recommended, this is from a 1977 FDA guideline. I don't know if the FDA ever made sense, but it made more sense then than it does now, uh, presumably. Uh, 1977 FDA guidelines, they said, you know what, about 4,000 uh, milligrams, about four grams per day is really as much as you can safely take. And the toxic dose is now understood uh, to be about 200 to 300 milligrams per kilogram of weight, which is about 20 grams per day for a 180 pound person. 
So reminder uh, that the treatment for Spanish flu in many areas was between 8 and 31 grams per day, where the toxic dose of aspirin is now understood to be about 20 for a 180-pound um, person. So, lethal dose. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't, the word lethal isn't used here. So I'm, I'm being a little squidgy with my language because I couldn't find, I couldn't find the precise language I was looking yep. for, but, um, but yes, I think so. So, um, as Gautamala writes in this piece, this is why incredible caution should be exercised around large departures from tested and true medical practice and new pharma modalities and products. Aspirin in 1918 was a new product, relatively new product. And um, his primary source is this, uh, this paper called by a woman named Starko from 2009 called Salicylates and Pandemic Influenza Mortality, 1918-1919 Pharmacology, Pathology, and Historic Evidence. It was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. And it is presented as a hypothesis, which is um, pretty, pretty fantastic. And if you want to show my screen, I just have a couple of sections to read from this paper. So again, this is this is published as a hypothesis. It's published under um, the title "Viewpoints," uh, again by a, by an MD who appears to be an independent researcher, uh, in which she argues that it was indeed the widespread use of aspirin as a treatment for Spanish flu, which actually explains the mortality rate for Spanish flu. Here's a couple of quotes. I'm sorry, this is going to jump around. I'm going to try to scroll slowly so I can show it to you. Okay, here we go. Sorry, guys. Um, this one first. A confluence of events created a perfect storm for widespread salicylate aspirin toxicity. The loss of Bayer's patent on aspirin in February 1917 allowed many manufacturers into the lucrative aspirin market. Official recommendations for aspirin therapy at toxic doses were preceded by ignorance of the unusual nonlinear kinetics of salicylate, which were unknown until the 1960s, which predisposed to accumulation and toxicity tins and bottles that contained no warnings and few instructions, and fear of Spanish influenza, an illness that had been spreading like wildfire. So those are some of the, um, we're going to stay on this for a little bit. Um, those are some of the reasons um, that she thinks we had a perfect storm uh, in 1918 for Spanish flu to get treated uh, so aggressively and so wrongly and dangerously and tragically as, as the hypothesis goes um, with, for Spanish flu. Four lines of evidence support the role of salicylate intoxication in 1918 influenza mortality. Pharma pharmacokinetics, mechanism of action, pathology, and the spate of official recommendations for toxic regimens of aspirin immediately before the October 1918 death spike. So I'm not going to go through all of those all of those lines of evidence, but there's just one more little piece I want to read to you, I think. Oh, and just this the title of this section here. Aspirin advertisements in August 1918 and a series of official recommendations for aspirin in September and early October preceded the death spike of October 1918. And so you have, much like you do with COVID, where um, you know the, the, the big spikes after um, the mRNA vaccines were introduced, the big spikes right as people were rushing to get these, these treatments, which they thought would free them from the fear that had been inculcated in them. In this case, you had a, a blitz campaign to, um, to encourage everyone to buy aspirin and to treat with aspirin. Doctors were giving it between eight and 31 grams per day, when 20 grams per day is now known to be a potentially lethal dose. And, um, and people were able to buy it over the counter uh, in, um, 
I'm actually not sure about that, but people were able to get it much more freely than they had before because it was no longer under patent. Which um, it makes sense with the pathology that was observed with Spanish flu, where um, the dead had lungs that were saturated, soaking wet, right? And, you know, aspirin famously thins the blood and the idea that it was leaking into their um, lungs is consistent with this. So just to, to encapsulate this so far, um, the, the question is, if the initial supposition is right, that respiratory pathogens tend not to be that serious, they tend not to be that virulent, um, because in order to succeed, they have to keep you uh, more or less on your feet, then what the heck happened with Spanish flu? That one was pretty damn virulent, and it had a very high case fatality rate. And now the question is, could it have been aspirin? Could it have been the insanely high doses that were being given at the time and the fear that stoked people, including doctors, to use and to prescribe these very, very high doses and when they weren't working, to amp them up the way we did with the respirator uh, pressures? Yeah, the ventilator pressures. The ventilator pressures. Um, precisely. And uh, apparently uh, doctors, um, military doctors, were... Were early early adopters of aspirin as treatment, and uh, I maybe there was some evidence some places um, that what I've seen in my you know relatively brief look so far is that once you were on the aspirin is going to be useful to treat Spanish flu game, uh, at the point that your patient started to get sicker, the response was almost always we'll give them more aspirin. Uh, which then actually um, accelerated the demise of the patient. Yes, and the fact that this was happening in a military context, which is, again, very top-down, right? Yeah. So, you know, whatever the high-ups are saying, you know, the high-up doctors in the military are saying should be used, it's going to spread like wildfire. The point is that also stokes fear by giving the impression that it is these young, highly fit soldiers. What yes. the heck kind of pathogen is this? Yes. Right? So. Yes. Um, the anomalies are many surrounding mm -hmm. 1918. And I would also point out that just as, you know, every death was counted as a COVID death, which amped our fear, which caused us to react with, you know, basically like a panicked, like a drowning person mm -hmm. rather than a rational person, the idea that the 1918 flu was haunting us during COVID. Mm -hmm. Fear of that flu caused us to behave irrationally with respect to COVID when it emerged. And frankly, there's more reason to be concerned about COVID because, you know, it's a, you know, it, it came apparently from a lab. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it does, if either it's going to be able to spread, in which case it's going to abide by at least some of the things that limit the, uh, uh, the, the virulence of a normal respiratory pathogen, and here we, you know, chose every bad policy and mandated them from above. Right. And I think you, you said it, but um, iatrogenic causes of death and illness will be 100% conflatable with the illness itself, the pathogen itself being the cause of death and illness. Because iatrogenic harm only comes when you go to the medical establishment for treatment of the thing. And so of all of the things that could possibly be conflated, um, this, is, this is the easiest one to do. And that, you know, that doesn't mean that the conflation was necessarily intentional, right? Um, but if a pathogen causes something 
and the treatment of that something is uh, far more dangerous for you than the pathogen was. Uh, you, you need to not be surprised at the point that you have a hard time teasing those two effects apart. And the way to tease those two effects apart is to look at the different different um, healthcare practices in places like New York versus Delaware with regard to ventilators, or military bases um, versus cities with regard to aspirin during Spanish flu, right? And I think, uh, or, you know, or Sweden versus, uh, I, I think, I think Norway, but I don't know, but Sweden versus some other Northern European country with regard to effects of lockdowns and uh, letting a society be, you know, be as it is. So, you know, you look, you look for the place that did the different thing that you think may have been causing the iatrogenic harm, and then you can begin to see pattern. And there will be those who will say, well, there's no RCT. There's no randomized control study on that, randomized control trial. Like, of course, there can't be, because that's not the way this research could possibly work. And that is not a damning of the hypothesis or the suggestion that it could be iatrogenic harm. That is just the nature of the harm that it causes. You cannot do an RCT on this. So I will say, before I was aware of this argument, on my last uh, Joe Rogan um, appearance, I mentioned this possibility. I mentioned that I was in, con, I was um, now increasingly dwelling on the early use of the mm -hmm. ventilators, um, and the fact that that would have amped up the case, the apparent case fatality rate, and caused us to react ever more strongly. And I worry that mm -hmm. you know, in an environment where behind the scenes. Um, governmental authorities are actually licensing themselves to themselves to shut down truth, right? That they would also um, potentially, who knows, in what ways they might be willing to cause panic in order to get us to uh, surrender to their to their authority. Yeah, there's just a, another couple of things before we move on to our final segment for today. Um, I. As I said, this paper is presented as a hypothesis. It's got a lot of um, suggestive, suggestive evidence. Um, but I looked at the, I think it was a little bit more than 100 papers that cite this paper, the Starco 2009 paper that we've been um, talking about. And I find no attempts, successful or not, to, dis to discredit it, to discredit the argument. Um, indeed, I find, and I, you know, I did not look through all 100 papers that cited it, but a couple of the more recent papers that cited it were interesting in different ways. Love it all in 2020 um, used the argument by Starco about um, the use of aspirin as the cause of um, so much of the death and destruction of the Spanish flu as a cautionary tale. This is again in 2020. They use, um, they accept as fact what Starco lays out as aspirin having been a um, considerable cause of the death from Spanish flu, and use that to argue against the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID. Mm. Without, as far as I can tell, any any reason for doing that, but they say, ah, this can happen, therefore this is happening here. Okay, so that I found um, interesting. And then there's another paper. When in fact, the study that caused hydroxychloroquine to be... Um dropped from the list of possible treatments had the dose turned up so high that in fact it did toxify people. This very safe drug was given in such high doses that it caused this effect, which uh, 
certainly raises some questions. Yes. Why? Why? Given that unlike aspirin in 1918, hydroxychloroquine has been on the market, it's been in use for decades already. We know. We know the, the levels, you know, not perfectly, of course, and it will vary by individual, but we have a really good sense of what toxic levels are. So why would you have turned that dial all the way up? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so then there was another paper that cites, um, again, the um, Starco 2009 paper, which argues that aspirin, uh, widespread use of aspirin to treat Spanish flu was actually the cause of many of the deaths during the Spanish flu epidemic. Short et al. in 2018, this is before COVID, um, is a highly cited, more, much more actually is more highly cited than um, the original Starco paper, um, article called Back to the Future, Lessons Learned from the 1918 Influenza Pandemic, and it's published in Frontiers in Cellular and Infection Microbiology. So I thought this was promising, uh, but fascinatingly, this paper completely ignores her conclusions while citing her. Hmm. And I've seen that happen many, many times. Right. So they don't respond to the arguments in her paper at all. Um, they simply cite her to say that aspirin was used as treatment during the Spanish flu. And I have to wonder why. So they basically got in both of these two papers that I've just said, cite Starco 2009. And again, I went looking to see, okay, this is a hypothesis. Let me see if anyone has tried to debunk it, right? To, to falsify it, right? And on full display in both of these papers that are some of the most recent, most cited papers that cite her, you have this reductionist, hubristic approach to humans that doesn't understand anything about complex systems, the complex system that is the human body, that is our immune system, that is human society. And, you know, it's standard, it's, gosh, it's something we've been saying over and over and over again, welcome to complex systems. Why aren't the researchers, including the doctors and the scientists who are publishing in these medical and scientific journals and who are presumably, therefore, helping to set policy for the next time? Why can't they understand complex systems? Why are they working with this arrogance and this reductionist model that will continue to destroy people? Yes, um, they're doing it. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think what we really need is a is a body that is capable of investigating the question because you know we are persistently left with uh, multiple possibilities. Is this yeah. some new kind of hyper-virulent incompetence, something that exceeds all previous examples of incompetence, or do we have something worse than that? Yeah. Because it's really hard to fathom how you could do this much wrong and be this consistent about it, right? It's hard for incompetent people to pull that off, mm -hmm. um, but this was, uh, you know, Potentially something yeah, it's else. It's truly impressive if it's incompetence. Yeah, it's really it's a stunning level of it. It's it's a uh, you know connoisseur it's level. Some of the most competent incompetence that I've ever seen. Very well said. Thank you. Um, I had two last it. points that I wanted to make here. One, um, I was fascinated by this Gato Malo piece. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was a very good companion for the piece that I wrote for Unheard. Boy, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I wrote a piece about the question. I, I had, of course, been a bat researching biologist. I handled many bats, bare hands. Um, that was the way we handled them so as not to injure them. Uh, their wings are very fragile. Um, and I had wondered at the point that COVID emerged, I wondered, well, geez, I was handling wild bats and I, you know, certainly took basic precautions, mm -hmm. but... Was it possible that I was going to pick up a virus from 
a wild bat and I was going to be patient zero in some massive pandemic and I just got lucky. And in considering that question, I realized that no, in fact, I wasn't. It's much harder for viruses to leap from nature than we've been told. We have been sold a bill of goods that has caused us to be much more frightened of this possibility. And in fact, so frightened that we apparently funded research to study the viruses that we thought or claimed or pretended could have leapt out of nature and then turbocharged them to see what would happen if they did, right? We, this is a self-inflicted wound. And my point is, no, I wasn't running a big risk of, you know, spreading a pandemic by accident because it's much harder for, you know, I could have died of something. Mm -hmm. But the point is something in order to become a pandemic has to leap into a person, and then it has to leap from person to person in some way. Those are difficult evolutionary steps for them to accomplish. So and this is we talked about this early on when we were first talking about the possibility of lab leak back in spring of 2020, right? The 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 rapid ability of this virus um, to move between people suggested that it already had experience doing something like that, um, if not in people, then possibly in mink. Uh, with, uh, what, what was it, the similar ACE2? ACE2 receptors, you're right. Yeah. It, uh, mink, uh, human airway tissue, humanized mice. mice. Right, all of these things would have given it the training, essentially the lab playing the role of the intermediate host, which we've never found because it probably doesn't exist. Right. Um, but anyway, I thought, okay, so Gatomalo makes an excellent uh, argument that what happened is um, we spooked ourselves about a virus that, even though it is very destructive, was not likely to be that deadly by virtue of the fact that it is a respiratory virus and they abide by this trade-off. They have to. If it had been a super deadly virus, it wouldn't have spread around the world this way. That's right. Um, so that's one point. And then my point is, and we also got scared by a bunch of... Um, ghost stories about how the next virus was going to leap out of nature any minute because humans are doing something new and that's going to result in some terrifying pandemic with an extremely high fatality rate, right? Also not likely. So mm -hmm. those two things together, you know, how how worried do we have to be that A, a virus is going to leap out of nature and have a huge case fatality rate? Um, you know, well, if it's a respiratory virus, pretty low. Um, and pretty low for things to jump between species. When we're talking about things like bird flu, we're actually talking about things that do jump between species regularly, not something that jumped from nature that had never been seen in people before. Let me just pick up, I know you have one more point, but yeah. you said um, with regard to, you know, could you have, were you likely to become patient zero uh, in, in a pandemic um, that you could have picked up from a bat and then spread? And you had a little... Um, asterisk there and said, well, you know, I could have gotten sick. Like yep. I could have come down with something. And of course, you know, one of your mentors um, did exactly that, I believe. Um, no, we don't know what she died of. Oh, okay. Um, but, but bat biologists do, um, it, especially not so much with the kinds of bats that you were working on, because you were working on tent making bats and you weren't anywhere near caves, right? But, you know, if, you know, bats do, um, have respiratory viruses and being in a cave where the air is famously not refreshed and um and is um and a person working in a cave with a bunch of bats um may well pick up something well they do it's not viruses the thing that um yes. that bat biologists sometimes get is histoplasmosis which is a fungus um but yes but it's but it's 
basically another reason, you know, like should, should you, if, if the bats weren't at the cave, you know, she'd be spending time in the cave or outside of the cave. You're better off with regard to keeping clear of respiratory infections, being in fresh air outside, moving around, right? Where, where there's a lot of airflow and, you know, not in a, you know, a cave or a room or a care home or, you know, something else where, uh, where whatever is floating around, you're probably going to inhale it at some point. Yep. Yeah, no, from the point of view of, you know, there are these three miners who appear to have picked up something uh, cove-like prior to uh, mm-hmm. the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2 uh, potentially have, having been taken into the lab in Wuhan, um, who died of it, but they didn't transmit it to anybody, right. right? And frankly, the exposure level needed for them to get sick was apparently incredibly high. They were working, mm-hmm. uh, taking guano out of an old mine. And so the point is they were you know, knee deep in a highly dusty, destructive environment of the lungs. They picked up this uh, disease and did not transmit it, right? So the point is getting something from nature is possible. Yep. Transmitting it is unlikely to other people unless there's some path for that to happen. Okay, the last point I wanted to make is we have said here, we have bridled when people have accused us of... uh, quote unquote, killing people by discussing reasons to be concerned about things like the safety of mRNA transfection agents, um, which makes no sense at multiple levels. For one thing, nobody seems particularly eager to give us credit for having saved people, given that these transfection agents appear to be dangerous, right? They don't want to give us uh, any credit. They just want to say, you're killing people by raising hesitancy, when in fact, hesitancy may have been life-saving. But My point is, I don't want credit for saving people. I don't want to be accused of killing people. I want the recognition that the conversation saves people, that you can disagree with us, and you may be wrong, and we may be right. That doesn't make us the lifesavers and you the killers. The point is an honest participation in a conversation about what is true amongst people who have something reasonable to contribute. Everybody is contributing to the thing that saves lives, right? On the flip side... Were you a governmental official who decided that it would be okay to pollute the stream of information by pretending that people who have died from uh, abuse of a ventilator are actually deaths due to COVID, right? Pretending that a death of, you know, a child is equivalent to the death of somebody in their 80s. People who have not only polluted the information stream, but saw, saw, saw fit to silence those who were trying to unspin their story, mm-hmm. right? Those people actually did kill folks, right? They were not participating in a collective effort to figure out what was true so that we could lose fewer lives, so that we could, you know, protect people who were in a position to be protected. They did exactly the opposite. They blinded us. That's what they did. They intentionally blinded us. And then they demonized us by claiming that even if we were saying true things, if they went in the direction of making you distrust vaccines or your government for mandating them, that you were a terrorist, right? That is the kind of diabolical stuff that we have been dealing with. And it is time for everybody to wake up. A government that could do that to you cannot be trusted, and it must be cleared of people who participated in that, and it must be restored to protecting the basic principles that still apply as much as they did when the founders outlined them. It's a perfect segue to our last section. 
Theologian Paul Tillich uh, brought words of warnings, warning and passion to the German people during World War II. We're going to share some of those words here today. This week, librarian Keith Waddle, who is a frequent listener of Dark Horse, sent us one of Tillich's short essays that was broadcast by radio into Nazi Germany. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of background on Tillich first, and then read a couple of short excerpts from one of his uh, radio broadcasts. So he was born, Tillich, was born in 1886 near Berlin. Uh, he was a German soldier during World War I. He was acting as a chaplain at that time, but that didn't protect him from seeing, you know, he was, he was on the front lines, he was in foxholes, he was, he saw, he saw hell. He was, he was in the trenches. And didn't he bury his best friend? I don't know I, that. I think I read that. Sounds plausible. Um, after the war, among other things, he became a professor of philosophy at the University of Frankfurt, and he was the opposite of stuffy. He was, he was socializing, he was dancing, he was womanizing, uh, much to the chagrin of his wife. Uh, he was sort of a bon vivant. Uh, he left Germany for the United States uh, as the Third Reich ascended and continued his life uh, there. In fact, um, Brett, uh, who has been a photographer all of his life, has this... Uh, wonderful book jump um by the philosopher philosopher <laughs> photographer i don't know maybe he was the photographic ph philosopher <laughs> photographer philip halsman and he's just got a lot of famous people jumping in it and including actually, nixon and the pope and marilyn monroe and um here we have uh, dr paul tillich right there i did um, not know that yeah i all didn't right. know that either until this morning uh so um he's he's jumping as are all of the people in this in this book of um of philosophical photographs. Um, so he was in he was in the US, but uh, he was watching from afar. God, there's so much fur in our world. Um, he was watching from <laughs> That may be a local phenomenon. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, he was watching from afar as uh, as the Third Reich uh, was continued to ascend. And from March 1942 to Mar to May of 1944, he recorded 112 addresses in German for secret broadcasts by Voice of America, which fell under the control of the U.S. Office of War Information. And his aim was, and I'm quoting here from um, a book against the Third Reich, uh, Tillich's aim with these radio broadcasts was to divide the will of his German listeners from the mania of their Nazi rulers and to spur people in strategic positions to muster the necessary courage to stand against the terrorizing police state of Nazism. And I will just, I will remind us that it is very easy to look back to the 1940s and feel righteous and like everyone would have seen what was going on. But we can be quite sure, given what we have lived through in the last three years, that the vast majority of people don't see it when it happens. And uh, the radio broadcasts uh, that he made, these 112 uh, broadcasts that he made with the help of Voice of America and the U.S. government, are collected into a book, this book called Against the Third Reich, Paul Tillich's Wartime Radio Broadcasts into Nazi Germany. And the one I'm going to read a few excerpts from is called The Intelligentsia and Germany's Conquest, and it was originally broadcast on September 4th, 1942. And I can show my screen if you like, although it's going to be so small. Hold on a second. Um, that I'm actually going to read from the paper here. Um, so, okay. Um, just going to read the first two paragraphs and then, um, and then the last one. My German friends, wrote Paul Tillich. Today I want to speak to a group of people that is perhaps small in its supporting circle, but great in its consequences and its effects. I mean the bearers of the scholarly work 
of art and literature, of music and public discourse. Even if they were 100,000, they would be few in proportion to the millions of German people. But among these millions, there is no one who was not influenced in any way by this group, even if only in the language that he speaks and the technology that he uses. For this reason, the leaders of the intellectual life of a nation are infinitely important for its destiny. This group of intellectually leading Germans is more responsible for the tragedy of Germany and the misfortune that it has brought on the world and itself than the masses of the nation are, and nearly as responsible as that small stratum of landed proprietors and large entrepreneurs who handed over weapons and capital to National Socialism because they trembled in the face of social reorganization. Why did a great portion of the German scholars, writers, and artists make common cause with the forces of reaction, which held the stirrups for the present regime? Many will say what many of these stirrup holders are saying today. We did not know that the rider whom we helped into the saddle would ride the German nation and many nations with it into the abyss. We were in error, and we have made amends for that. Such an admission is certainly valuable and more promising for the future than the attitude of those who, even today, when the abyss has already become visible, pronounce their attitude at that time to be correct. And yet the admission of error is not enough. One must understand how the error could come about, what roots it had, and one must exterminate these roots in order that new errors and new harm may not grow forth from them. What are the roots from which one can account for the breakdown of the German intellectual leaders? How can they be exterminated? And what mission does an intellectual bearing stratum have in the reconstruction of Germany? Every thinking German should put this question to himself, above all, those who rank themselves among the bearers of intellectual life. Wow. And then we're going to have one more, but maybe we talk about that before we share the... Yeah, that's, in, that's incredible. Um, I must say, I feel like sending it to Sam Harris. I think he might appreciate it. I'd hope he'd appreciate it. But um, anyway, yeah, that's um, extremely powerful. And I love the, uh, the point he makes about the responsibility that these people have, the disproportionate responsibility and their disproportionate failure and its implication for... Uh, what did he say? Holding the stirrups for the new regime? Holding the stirrups for the new regime. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the people who would have us believe that they are the intellectual lifeblood of the country and are to be trusted. And whatever conclusions they come to, you too can come to those conclusions. They're holding the stirrups for the masters who do not have your best interests at heart. And anyone who is telling you that you should not try to understand for yourself, but simply accept the authoritative conclusions of others. Uh, when, when you have seen with your own eyes how reliably the authoritative conclusions of others have been wrong, they also do not have your best interests at heart. Regardless of whether or not they are merely confused or are actually trying to hurt you, it doesn't matter. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. One sentence in the middle of this essay, which is, extraordinary, I recommend it. The unveiling of the truth is not pleasant to those who have power and misuse this power at the expense of others. For this reason, they fear the intellect and seek either to wipe out its bearers or, what is more important in the long run, to buy them and to place them in their service. Okay, and one more, just the last paragraph of this piece. Same piece, uh, originally broadcast um, by Paul Tillich, uh, with the help of the U.S. government from America, where he was by then living, into Nazi Germany in, just looking for the dates of the, of the broadcast, uh, was uh, September 4th, 1942. Final paragraph. 
I have spoken today in the first place to the bearers of the intellect, the scholars and writers, the artists and orators. But the intellectuals of every nation not only form the nation, but are also formed by it. And for this reason, I call out to the German nation, do not consent any longer to your philosophers and authors conjuring up a world that is not yours and that leaves you in your misery. Demand intelligence from them that is in fact intelligence, that does not glorify a wicked reality, but unveils and unmasks the roots of this reality. The intellect that seeks a new, that sees a new reality and builds in partnership with you. The mind that says what you feel and thinks what you hope. Allow the old, feeble mind to decay behind the walls. Allow the old, feeble mind to decay behind the walls of the Reich Culture Board and make room for the new mind that changes reality. Extremely powerful. I know that there are many uh, in America today, both among the class who consider ourselves intellectuals and people who don't consider themselves intellectuals, although frankly the distinction uh, is one that in most cases I think is without a difference. Uh, but to the degree that Tillich was making uh, a, a distinction, it's important in, in thinking about this essay. There are so many people who are not confused and the ways that they got there are variable, uh, but the people that we hear from, and there are a lot of them, who say, I had something in my gut, I thought that there wasn't something right, I started to see this and then this and then this, and I couldn't make sense of why I was supposed to start believing them after it was clear that they had at least been wrong if, hadn't, if not had been lying to me so far. Thank you for having the conversations that modeled intelligent conversation again in terms of raising awareness of where the inconsistencies were, where the bodies were buried, why the science couldn't possibly have said what they were telling us the science said, and frankly, being, if maybe most of all, just staunch in our defense of science, of actual science, not the science in follow the science, not the science that Fauci claims to embody. That's not science. What we need, what we need to be a functioning society, to have any chance of moving forward into the middle of this century, much less the next one, is actually have people who understand what science is, are willing to do it, even when the results of it produce something that you look at and go, God, I wish that weren't true. But if it is, Let's go. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out what to do next. Pretending that what is true isn't serves no one in the long run. Yeah, we have a, a situation where our governments or whatever has captured them is demonizing the very people that we need to listen to, but it is also doing so in an era where we have a new kind of pirate radio you know, where we have Glenn Greenwald, we have Snowden, we have Russell Brand, we have Joe Rogan, we have Woody Harrelson, we have Bobby Kennedy Jr. We have all of these voices who are, you know, each of them taking from their own uh, discipline and uh, standing up courageously, John Campbell. All of these people are telling us something that we need to know. And uh, it's like 
It's like a society in exile. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think it is time that we lean into it and figure out how the adults are going to, you know, right the ship of state and return us to a, a place where we can, uh, you know, again, fight over how it is we can achieve the values that we all agree on. Absolutely. All right. All right. I think we're there for the week. Um, we will not be doing a Q&A today. Encourage you to go check out Natural Selections. Uh, find us at our Patreons, perhaps. Uh, we will be back here same time next week, noon 30 Pacific time on Saturday, and next week we will be following that with a Q&A. So if you, were, um, if you have been holding on to a question for a while, you can ask it then, or you can go into my Patreon and find an opportunity soon to ask a question in advance for that private Q&A, which is um, a lot of fun. So, until we see you next, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>